I found myself thinking quite a bit about Noah here recently. You know, Noah, in 20 years, about a crisis that was coming upon the world. And for most of those 120 years, there was little to no evidence of what he was preaching. And then one day the animals came. And then the door of the ark was shut by supernatural means. And by the way, it was a beautiful day when that happened. A few days later, the clouds began to gather. My friends, it was when the signs were evident that the crisis was imminent. Don't miss that. For 170 years, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been preaching the soon coming of Jesus and the crisis that would precede it. Matthew chapters 24 and the books of Daniel and Revelation give the signs of that final crisis and the second coming. My friends, those signs are fast fulfilling all around us now. This tells us that the crisis now is imminent. Do we believe that? The framework for this morning's message is found in Ecclesiastes 1.9, which says, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, for there is nothing new under the sun. This morning, I'm really not going to take a look at, uh, at the signs of, sec- of Christ's second coming. There are too many to list. It would be a series. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look into the past. We're going to look at, uh, at, at two events. I'm going to review one, and we're going to look at two other events in Adventist history and in Bible history to see where we are now in the stream of time. So the first thing I want to do is a review of my last message that was entitled, In the Fullness of Time. And in my last message, we locked in on Galatians 4, verse 4. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is very interesting because this implied that God had been waiting for something. In the fullness of time, when time was full, God sent his son. And we talked about six things. I'm going to review them now quickly. Number one, the pagan Rome ruled the known world at that time. Number two, one language was recognized as the language of literature. If you were going to go anywhere, you had to know this language. Friends, what was the language? It was Greek. Number three, interestingly, at this very time, the Gentiles were longing for something more. The flash and the glitz of their pagan Beliefs and worship was losing its hold upon the people. It left them empty, and they were longing for something more. You know, God was visiting other people groups in visions and dreams, communicating to them that a deliverer was coming. The wise men that showed up on Jesus' front door were actually representatives of this group. 
Number four, at this very time, Israel, the people of God, were drifting from Him. They were no longer looking for a Savior from sin. They were looking for a Savior from Rome. And yet, there were a few faithful souls who were in the Word. They were studying prophecy, and they recognized in Daniel, uh, prophecy uh, 8 uh, and, and 9, talking about the 490-year prophecy, they knew that the, that the Messiah, the Savior, was about to come. Not only that, but they were also studying the prophecies found in Genesis 49, verse 10, that spoke of the fact that the Messiah wouldn't, uh, would come before the nation of Israel lost her place in, the, in, 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 in its world place. It lost its, uh, its nation identity. And the fact that Israel was uh, under the oppressive rule of Rome and they had a puppet ruler on the throne, they recognized in the decline of Israel that soon she would lose her place. That meant the Messiah had to come quickly. Then the other thing that had to line up was the dispersion. Uh, the Jewish people were spread out all over the known world. This would afford an opportunity for the gospel to spread quickly. Everything was set and Christ came. Why is this important to us? Because these same things are lining up. Only this time, it's not pagan Rome that's seeking to rule the world. It's now papal Rome. And we've talked about how this May, that, uh, the Ro the, that Pope has sent out a summons to the world leaders to come together along with uh, anyone of any influence to meet with him uh, on a plan to help the world. The world, brothers and sisters, is wondering after the beast. And then today, if you're going to be anything and go anywhere, what is the language you have to learn if you're going to be successful in politics, education, or what have you? What is it? It's English. Um, and by the way, having one language that dominates helps to break down uh, the walls uh, of the borders of nations. It affords an opportunity for the gospel to spread quickly. Once again, in the pagan and, and heathenistic world, there are people wistfully looking to heaven, searching for answers. There are people wanting truth, brothers and sisters, out there. And oddly enough, it comes at a time when the Christian world is drifting far from God. But there is a group the Bible refers to as the remnant that is studying their Bibles. They recognize in Bible prophecy the evidences and the signs of Christ's soon coming. They recognize in the decline of the power of the United States that Jesus has to come quickly. The United States is in a moral freefall, brothers and sisters. Its economic status is teetering. And there is no world power after this one. And then we talked about the fact that the Seventh-day Adventist Church today in the, of the approximate 237 nations around the world has a presence in 207 of them. And where she doesn't have an official presence, she is sending in messages via the radio or the internet. Everything is ready for the return of Christ. 
Now what I want to do is teach a little history. I taught in, at uh, Wachata Hills College, and one of the classes that it was my privilege to teach was Adventist history. We're going to lock in in a very important moment in the Seventh-day Adventist church. That moment uh, was the late 1800s. And uh, in the late 1800s, God sent two men to present a message to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. It was the message of righteousness by faith. It's very interesting that um, uh, Brother Wagner, E.J. Wagner, in 1881, was in the uh, Battle Creek uh, Tabernacle listening there to a worship service when the message of righteousness by faith clicked in his head. It dawned on him what it meant. And from that moment on, he began teaching it and publishing it. Later, A.T. Jones joined him. And uh, very interestingly enough, if you do a timeline of history at that time, about the same time that uh, Wagner begins to understand the message of righteousness by faith, the Sunday law issue begins to agitate within the United States. Very interesting. Unfortunately, these men got a lot of pushback from well-meaning but ignorant leaders within the denomination. Now, in the spring of 1888, you may not be aware of this, but in the spring of 1888, Senator Blair submits a Sunday law bill to Congress. In the fall of 1888, the Seventh-day Adventist Church meets for its general conference session in Minneapolis. And what do you think they talked about? The Sunday bill? Were they talking about the events that were quickly unfolding? No. They came together to argue over Galatians chapter 4 and what it meant, as well as the, the 10th division uh, of Rome uh, that, that is talked about in Daniel 7, though we all know the real issue underlying all this was the message of righteousness by faith. The church was distracted at the absolute worst time. My friends, by these things happening, heaven was communicating to the denomination that they were ready for the rescue. Heaven was ready to bring an end to the great controversy. The Sunday laws were moving. Revival was breaking out within the Seventh-day Adventist church as Jones, Wagner, and Sister White began visiting the various camp meetings, presenting the message, and that revival would peak out in 1892. In the 1890s, the U.S. economy was in a terrible state. It was in crisis. In fact, there was talk about changing the currency over. Do you have any idea what that would have done? If you've got a lot of money in the bank on Monday and the currency changes over in the weekend, how much you got on, 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 how much you got left? Nothing. That's what was happening. And in the midst of these things, Sister White get, said a quote, gave a quote that was a mind blower. It was found, it's found in Review and Herald. Uh, it was published on October 20, on November 22, 1892, in the midst of the of the, uh, of the revival, she says this. Now, unless you know Adventees, you're not really going to grasp what she's saying here. She says, the time of test is just upon us. Okay, Adventists, what's the test? The Sunday law issue. 
Now watch this. The, sun, the time of test is just upon us for the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. Now, unless you have done some study in the book of Revelation, that doesn't mean a whole lot to you. But let me tell you what, what she was saying. The, the time of test, the Sunday laws were coming. Why? Because the third angel's message was going. The message of righteousness by faith was moving. And as a result, the loud cry began. What's the loud cry? It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain that amplifies the message. And she says, this is beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. Brothers and sisters, what Ellen White was telling us is that the latter rain had begun. It always accompanies the message of righteousness by faith. And uh, if you need a quote for that, Review and Herald 1890, several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Brothers and sisters, this is the everlasting gospel of Revelation 14. Righteousness by faith is faith that Jesus can make you righteous. Amen. Let me repeat it. Righteousness by faith is faith that Jesus can make you righteous. It was the giving and the receiving of this message that began to open the windows of heaven and the latter rain was beginning to be poured out. It was the sprinkling, but the showers were coming. The loud cry had begun. The world would soon be warned and the great controversy would soon be over. But sadly, it was not to be as the church missed her opportunity. The church, it's interestingly, interesting, but the church really didn't have a grasp of how God saves a sinner. They didn't. There was a great deal of confusion over this aspect of the plan of salvation, not justification. They were confused over sanctification. Uh, I'm going to share with you just three prominent beliefs at this time within our denomination. Number one is that people were saved by head knowledge. Simply knowing what the truth is and agreeing to it uh, and, and, uh, and being part of the club made you saved. The other that was very prominent was, well, we have a fallen nature. We're going to keep sinning, but we'll be saved in the end. The third one was, we better, we better obey and save ourselves. We better pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and, uh, and make ourselves ready. Does this sound familiar? Tragically, the message was resisted by some key mis misguided leaders and thus kept from the people. And the revival died by 1898. Of course, many of these leaders later repented, but the damage was done. Now, Sister White makes the following comments regarding this period when the revival dies. There are two comments she makes that are very significant. I hope you can see that. But in uh, Selected Messages, book, uh, chapter, uh, book one, page 67, 69, she says this. Follow carefully. 
For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the what? Unbelief, the worldliness, and unconsecration and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. Then she makes this one that we're all familiar with. This is Evangelism 696. We may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. But for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequences of their own wrong course of action. Please note, my friends, that Sister White compares our church's lack of faith in receiving and incorporating the message of righteousness by faith with the rebellion of Israel at their first approach to the promised land in Kadesh Barnea. If you remember, God had promised to conquer the land for them. Remember? But they sent in the 12 spies, and when the spies came in and they saw how big the walls were, how big the cities were, how big the citizens of the land, the Anak were there, the giants, they came back and they said, we can't do it, it can't be done. Ten of them gave a bad report, and the people believed it. And because of their lack of faith in God's power to conquer the land, God had no choice but to turn them back into the wilderness. Now, Sister White, what she does, this is very significant, is that she cements the history of our denomination with the history of Israel at this time period. This is extremely important and significant. Why? Because whatever happens next, we mirror. Now, the Apostle Paul agrees with this. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, all these things happen unto them for what? Examples and samples. And they are written for our admonition. Now, watch how our is defined. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. That text is speaking directly to the people of God at the close of time. What happened to Israel will be repeated. By the way, I want to share something with you that was interesting. You remember at Kadesh Barnea, when the children of Israel did not believe God's promise and, were, and then they were turned back into the wilderness. Do you remember a plague broke out? Do you remember that? A plague broke out. Ten of those, those ten unfaithful spies lost their lives, and many of the people did the same. Push pause. When the Seventh-day Adventist church, when its leadership and members did not believe that God could give them victory over the land, over themselves, to give them righteousness as he promised he would, to change their lives when they didn't believe that message and instead decided to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which can't happen, okay? They turned into the wilderness. If they mirror, shouldn't a plague have broken out? If you know Adventist history, the revival dies by 1898. What event takes place in the history of the Adventist church that immediately follows. Are you familiar with the Alpha apostasy of John Harvey Kellogg when he introduced, tried to introduce pantheism to the church? 
And it cleaned out a lot of our people. The plague struck. Very, very interesting. Ironically, so after the years of wandering in the desert, Israel finally approached the borders of the promised land a second time. Am I right? Well, after considering our church's history in 1888 and how it paralleled the rebellion of Israel at Kadesh Barnea, the end of Israel's wilderness wandering begins to loom large and important to us as a people. Wouldn't you think? What was Israel's experience just before they finally entered the promised land? We now turn to Baal Peor. And this is recorded in Numbers 25. If you have your pencils ready, you have your bulletins, write down Numbers 25. And then write down PP41. I want you to look prayerfully at Patriarchs and Prophets, chapter 41. But prayerfully read, first, uh, um, first read um, Numbers 25 and then chapter 41 prayerfully. It's going to blow your mind. And I cannot go into all the detail here now with you. I'm just going to hit the highlights Actually, they're really low lights is what they are. So what happened at Baal Peor? Let's take a look. And I'm just going to touch on two verses, Numbers 22.1 and Numbers 25.1. When the children of Israel, uh, then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across Jericho. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. So what did the nation of Israel do on the very borders of the promised land? They entangled themselves with the women of Moab. They began by attending their festivals. They began attending the festivals of their heathen neighbors. Are we listening? They began witnessing their festivities. The record states that they were beguiled by the music of their heathen neighbors. Very interesting. In, in, in that chapter, Sister White uses the word beguiled. That's the same word that describes what happened to Eve when she faced the serpent. She was beguiled. You know, I've shared this in the past. I'll touch on it here again. The issue of music is much larger than we think. There is no neutrality, brothers and sisters, in the great controversy. Everything plays a part. It is either being done God's way or the devil's way. There is no neutrality. When it comes to music, there is no neutrality. It's not a matter of style or preference. It's a matter of principle. Are you with me? God has music that will draw us to him, and the devil has music that will draw us to him, and we cast the deciding vote. There is a tremendous ignorance amongst us as a people as to what are the principles that govern godly music. I had mentioned to you already that on our website... We have a three-part series by a Baptist preacher called Pop Goes the Music. Please listen. Now, there's, in one of the, of the three parts, you're going to have about a two-minute window where you don't have anything, you can't see anything, but the man continues to speak. I'm sorry. It was the best presentations we could find. But just be patient. It's not your computer. Just keep listening. 
But I encourage you, educate yourselves on what is are the principles that govern the music of heaven. If we're planning to go there, let's start listening to it now. Does that make sense? So important. But the reason I bring this up that is so significant is that, um, that when you look at what Sister White describes happens, it immediately, every, the cascade of evil follows the music. The first thing listed is music. And then what follows? She mentions das- dancing, feasting, intoxication, lewdness, which is, which is sex, uh, sexual uh, inappropriateness, and then finally, idolatry. Listen to me. Music will change you. The wrong kind and the right kind will as well. Um, if, if music will change your theology, the wrong kind of music will change your theology. Um, when I, I have worked with young people for much of my ministry, and when I have seen change, a, a drastic change in a young person, assuming it's not some kind of trauma, okay which could be physical or emotional, assuming it's not trauma. When I have seen a personality change in a kid, it's usually been, it usually revolves around one of three things. Sex, okay, they got involved in sex. Drugs, or they got into the wrong music. That has been my experience. Those three things will change your kid about overnight. They got into the wrong music. There they were on the very shores of the promised land. And uh, the, the, the apostasy was systemic. It was, it was actually a national apostasy. So how does this apply to us today, Pastor? Like Israel of old, brothers and sisters, the church in the closing days has allowed the world to come into its ranks. We are lukewarm. We are either all of his or none of his. Today, many want the world and heaven too, and they're going to lose both. In many SDA homes today, we find not only the, the, the music of the world, we find dress, dress styles of the world, the entertainment of the world, intoxicating drink of the world. Let me push pause here, but that's how I got involved in it was going into the homes of Adventists. When I was a kid, me and my friends, that's how we got into alcohol. I just shared something with you I don't don't normally share. But that's how we got into it, as kids. We find pornography, illicit relationships, and the bringing in of worship styles foreign to the Word of God. God revealed to us how to worship Him. He doesn't ask us how we're going to do it because we're sinners. He told us how. And in the sanctuary, he reveals it to us. And if we need clarity, he spells it out in the spirit of prophecy. Thank God for these sources. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we forgot something. God called us to come out from among them and be separate. Those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ will be different from those who do not. There is a distinction The citadel of the soul must be guarded, my friends. Read chapter 41. She goes into much more detail than what I did here. Brothers and sisters, we are living on the verge of the eternal world. 
And amazingly, like Israel of old and Baal Peor, the people of God have distracted themselves once again with women. To be more specific, I'm talking about the women's ordination issue. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and talk about the rightness or the wrongness of the cause. I'm here to tell you it has been an enormous distraction to us as a people. The world church has, the world church in session has come together and three times faced this issue and three times have said no. And yet there are many who are persisting and have ignored the authority of the church. They have violated what the remnant church of God in the last days has voted. We forgot something, brothers and sisters. In Testimonies, Volume 3, page 492, the prophet of, of God told us the mind of God when he said this, when she said that, wrote this. When the judgment of the general conference, that's the world in session, which is the what? The highest authority that God has upon the earth is exercised. Private independence and private judgment must not be maintained, but must be what? The refusal to do that is defiance to the authority of God. We are allowing this to divide us at the absolute worst possible time. This summer, the GC session, uh, this issue is again on the agenda. But it's not to vote to this issue now. No, no. This time it's going to, do, it's, it's going to be dealing with the noncompliance issue. This is going to be a huge GC session. Next year, our church, our nation, and our world will be facing monumental changes. Ironically, like the church in 1888, this comes at a time when in the spring, the Pope is calling the world leaders to gather to support his plan to fix the world's environmental crisis. And undergirding this plan is Sunday sacredness. Like 1888, the Sunday laws today are all over the world. Now granted, they don't have the religious bite that we know they're going to have. Right now, these laws are more like a family thing that's being passed along. But brothers and sisters, the groundwork is being laid all around the world while we're sitting here eating potluck. Like 1888, and let me tell you something. When this thing finally has the bite and it's coming, it's going to go like a flash fire because the groundwork is already laid. Like 1888, the economy of the U.S. and the world is teetering. I want to share some little history with you that I think is kind of interesting. In, 1890, uh, in, in 1929, the world experienced a crash. In October of 1929, the crash came. Does anyone here, we have some historians here, I hope, does anyone here remember what the newspapers were reporting on the night before the crash? How powerful the economy was. The next day it crashed. Peace and safety is what they were giving. In, in, in 2008, um, 
the, the, US, the U.S. debt was at $14 trillion. I can't even figure out what that is. That's so huge. And um, there, there were, there were uh, warning signs. And there were some men out there, honest-hearted economists, who began to give a warning. But the majority were saying peace and safety. I know a man who went to sleep one night with $400,000 in the bank, his retirement, and when he woke up the next day, it was gone. Okay? Why am I sharing this with you? Because it took our nation. Our nation has been in existence now for what, 243 years? It took 243 years to get the $14 trillion debt. Now, 12 years later, do you know where we are? Try $23 trillion. We have almost doubled in 12 years what it took 243 to get to. Do you hear anybody talking about how bad things are? Listen, if they're telling you how good they are, buyer beware. If I'm in debt, two, two, if I'm in debt $23 trillion, you're not going to convince me that things are okay in my bank account. But the thing is that this, this is the same thing all around the world. The other nations are also facing the same exact economic uh, crisis. We, we are facing an economic crisis, brothers and sisters. We're going to go to sleep one night and wake up to a third world country. We are distracted and divided as a people at the absolute worst time. Brothers and sisters, the latter rain will not be poured out on a disunified church. Though I firmly believe that the sprinkling has begun. Please take note, the latter rain sprinkling is underway right now. How do I know? Because of what I see happening in the world. You see, it's the message that brings on the crisis, brothers and sisters. The devil can't let this message go. Volume 1, Selected Messages, page 175. When the laborers have had an abiding Christ in their souls, when all selfishness is dead, when there is no rivalry, no strife for the supremacy, when oneness exists, when they sanctify themselves so that love for one another is seen and felt, then the showers of the grace of the Holy Spirit will just as surely come upon them as that God promise will never fail in one jot or tittle. That's what happened in the early church. They came together. But that's not what's happening now. Now, now we've been talking glo in, in a larger scale, but let's talk about here. We're a family. Amen. And you know, sometimes family, as family, we hurt one another. Brothers and sisters, there needs, and sometimes it's not even by accident, but there needs to be forgiveness. Are you with me? If I want to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I have to be willing to forgive someone else just as God forgave me. Does that make sense? Amen. So, Pastor, what now? I'll tell you what now. Something is going to have to give. I believe that something is about to happen, and it's not going to be man-made. It's going to be natural, or it's going to be supernatural. But something is coming. It's very interesting that a Baal Peor, just like at Kadesh Barnea, a plague broke out at Baal Peor. 
when the people of God apostatized themselves on the very verge of the border of the promised land, a plague broke out. Do you remember that? Another one is coming. And the spirit of prophecy referred to it as the shaking. There is actually a division taking place amongst us as a people. There are those that are drawing closer to Christ and those who are drifting from him. Great Controversy, page 608. As the storm approaches, I want to pause there. Is the storm approaching? As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light. And when the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the what side? And popular. Everybody else is doing it. Here's another quote that we're familiar with. Volume 2, Selected Messages, page 380. The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. It remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out. What she's saying here is when this thing hits us, so many will leave that it will appear as though the denomination is no more. But she says no. By the way, what happens next is that our Sunday-keeping friends out there who love the Lord and have been following the truth suddenly see the Sabbath issue and they come in. That's what's next. I fear that as a people, we find ourselves today dealing with what I call the frog in the pot syndrome. Now you've heard how a frog will be in a pot, you can put him in a pot of water and slowly start cranking up the temperature and as long as you're doing it slowly, he will never recognize his danger. That water will be boiling. You will cook him, and he will never try to get out. We're asleep. In 1888, the devil made a frontal attack to our denomination. And when he did it, he woke up the church. He's not going to make that mistake this time. He's going to blindside us this time. He is preparing for what he's about to do next. When this thing hits us, it's going to be fast and furious. We were told that the final movements will be what? When this one hits us, it's coming as an overwhelming surprise. I know I could have stood up here and said a great deal about all the signs. I could have stood up here and talked about the intensity that is gripping our world today. Couldn't I have? My friends, things really are fast becoming like they were in the days of Noah and Lot. In fact, I could talk about this global warming business. And I've shared with you, I don't doubt for a moment that the pollutants that we've put out into our environment are, are, are causing problems. I'm not going to argue the fact. But what we're seeing in wholesale destruction is not that. We were told what it is. The Spirit of God is being withdrawn. Not from His people. Never from His people but from the rejectors and despisers of this gospel. The Spirit of God is being withdrawn. You know, uh, it's very interesting. If you do, if you do any research on, on the increase of severe weather events, science has been tracking this for the last... They have said they have, they have, they're, 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 they're tracking an increase over the last 36 years, but that increase has spiked over the last five I submit to you that we're now going to see a ratcheting of that. 
and what's happening in Australia is unprecedented. We are going to be seeing more and more unprecedented events around the world, catastrophic. So here's my question, is all this a coincidence? You know, I found myself, I'm going to share something here with you. I found myself really wrestling with the Lord. There's so much more I can tell you. But I was saying, Lord, am I crazy? Everything is lining up. We're on the very verge of the crisis, and we're asleep. So I said, Lord, if I'm understanding this right, will you confirm this for me? I need a confirmation before I put this before the people. The next day, an evangelist friend of mine on the West Coast sent me an email, a link. I want you to see it. This is a testimony that was given in a church in the Midwest. The, the testimony was given on November 11. I want to have a word of prayer with you before you listen to this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your presence here today. I thank you, Lord, that you are giving us a, a warning that, that it's time that we, that we, get, we, we get right with you. And Lord, as, as I present this message, I pray for the, again, an extra measure of your spirit to filter what we're about to hear. I thank you for asking in Jesus' name. Amen. When she's done, I will finish my thoughts. Happy Sabbath. Um, so my story's different, and some of you might be tempted not to believe it, but as real as I'm standing here, it happened. And I want you guys to be blessed with what happened to me. On August 17th, 2019, I was driving home from Michigan. I had stayed in a cabin with my sister and my niece. Ron and Haley were with the Pathfinders in Wisconsin. As I started to drive home, I started to feel very nauseous. I was really upset to my stomach. I remember praying on the way home and listening to Christian music. By Saturday evening, I was really achy and feeling like I just wanted to climb in bed. Cheyenne, my daughter, offered to take Addie for the night so I could get some rest. Well, Sunday was awful. I thought I had the worst stomach flu that I could even imagine. I started to run a fever. Each time I took my temperature, I would take it in the morning, I would take it at night, it would get higher. It started out at 99.9, then it went up to 100.1. By Tuesday, it was 101. By, no, by Monday, Monday it was 101. By Tuesday morning, I was almost at 103. I called Ron at work. I said, this flu should be better, but I'm worse than it when it started. We discussed options. Should I go to the doctors, urgent care, or to the ER? Well, as a nurse, I did not want to go to the ER. <laughs> you don't go to the ER unless it's truly necessary. <laughs> But thank the Lord that I kneeled and prayed. And I asked God, what should I do? When I finished praying, I told Ron, I'm going to the ER. He said, are you sure? It's a $350 deductible. <laughs> <laughs> I took Addie, and I headed to the ER. This was Tuesday morning. They ran a lot of tests, and they sent me home with some pill form of an antibiotic. One of the tests they drew was called a set of blood cultures. They drew one in the left arm and they drew one in the right arm. 
This tests for bacteria in your bloodstream. I took a pill Tuesday morning, and Wednesday morning I took another one. Right after I took the pill, I received a call from the ER. It said, you need to come back right now. Your blood cultures are positive. This meant that I had bacteria in my bloodstream. I was scared. Having bacteria in your bloodstream is very serious. That infected blood was running all the way through my heart, my kidneys, my brain, and my lungs. Everywhere that blood went, it could cause serious problem. I sent a text to at least two church members requesting prayers. I said, please pray for me. Ask everybody you know to pray for me. I called Ron. I said, I'm going to the hospital, and I think I'm going to get admitted. This was very stressful for us. We were trying to figure out who's going to care for an active four-year-old girl, who's going to pick Haley up from school. It was the first week of school. Your lives are so busy, and then one of you gets yanked from it. Panic sets in to try to figure out you're going to cover things. I needed IV antibiotics to fight this infection. I did what anybody else would do at this time. I Googled the Internet. <laughs> That's what you do when something's wrong. If I didn't get IV antibiotics fast, I could go septic, and it held a high risk of death. I knew more than anything else right now I needed God's healing. I was admitted to Kettering on Wednesday morning. Now, I prayed as much as I could. Ron had to leave me to take care of the girls. He had work. He had meetings. Thursday night came. The nurses and the hospital staff were very kind to me, and I feel blessed. Now, several people came by to visit me. And I am going to mention names. Pastor Baldwin came and saw me. <laughs> he came and saw me at my worst. I had my glasses on, my hair was up in a bun, and I had no makeup on. <laughs> but I am grateful for the prayers. I'm grateful for flowers, and I'm grateful for the visits. Now, I tried to be cheerful, and I tried to be pleasant. I wanted to show God as much as I could. Plus, I work at that hospital, and the last thing I wanted to do is write something nasty about me in my chart. <laughs> It can be hard to be in the hospital, isolated from your family. Night came, and everybody left. The night nurse came in, and she told me in passing, they found Simonella in your stool, and then she left. I started Googling the Internet. <laughs> My anxiety level was super high. My mind was racing. If Simonella was in my stool and my colon, then that's what was running around in my bloodstream. I had food poisoning, and now it was running free in my blood. Everything that I read on the Internet put me in a frozen state of fear. My heart was pounding. This can create pockets of pus and throw them on a heart valve, your spine, your kidneys. Death possible, it said. Septic, shock six to eight weeks of IV antibiotics. I called Ron twice after 10 o'clock, crying. He said to me, are you on your phone? Are you Googling? <laughs> Put it down, he said. Put your phone down and pray. That's the only place to go. So there he was, stressed out, tired, exhausted, and trying to be me, caring for two girls. I got off the phone. I felt the deepest darkness settle over me. Thoughts were coming hard and fast. You could die in here. 
You could be sick for a very long time. I started to pray. Now some of this prayer was out loud and some of it was in my mind. But I pleaded with God as I never have before in my whole life. I was crying out to him. I said, God, please lift this darkness and this fear and bring me your peace and your healing. Let me feel your presence so that I know you're here. Because if you're here, everything will be okay. This lasted for a very long time. Maybe an hour, maybe longer. Not one bit of peace came. I started repeating scriptures. Nothing brought relief. All I could feel was total dread and fear. I remember saying, God, why are you ignoring me? You love those who love you, and you know that I love you. I am praying that in this time of sickness and fear, I pray that he would give me an experience with him that was beyond anything that I've ever experienced. I pray that he would use this time to truly bring me into his presence. Now, I can't remember everything that I said while I was praying, but I do know this. I pressed harder, and even though I didn't hear him speak to me, I continued to pray. I refused to give up. I refused to back down, and I refused to stop praying. I knew there was one God, one healer, and he's the one that I needed to press my situation with. This ugly feeling continued, and it was awful. I wanted it gone. I was desperate for God and his peace. Now, what happened next is not easy to describe. My eyes were closed, and I was still praying. I thought maybe I was dreaming, but I was hearing the noises from my IV pump go off. I saw a window open up in my mind, a large space. I felt a presence in that room. I couldn't see the face, but I knew that I wasn't alone in that room. I knew it was God. I was totally terrified, as you can imagine but I felt like I was being given an opportunity to press my case before him. And I asked him, can you imagine what, what would be the first thing you'd say to God? I said, why are you ignoring me? Why didn't you give me any peace when I needed it so badly? At first, nothing was said. I started to see photographs put in front of my face. I said, what are these? No answer. Every photograph in color that was put in front of me was a scene of my life. I didn't need an explanation. I knew the meaning of each picture. It was something I had said, something that I had done. Now, I will tell you that one of the photographs had a scene, and I thought to myself, I didn't even say anything. I didn't even say anything in that situation. How could I have been in the wrong in that situation when I didn't even say anything? But the God who reads all thoughts and all motives and knows all things allowed me to see what my motive was in that situation, and I cried. I was seeing myself the way that God sees me. I confessed every single thing that he brought to my mind. 
Now, church family, I'm not going to lie to you here, because lying is wrong. <laughs> this was extremely painful. I was sobbing. I had dishonored his character, and I had let him down. The one person who loved me enough to send his son to die for me, I had hurt. A voice began to speak to me very clearly. He told me some very personal things. I told him how sorry I was for hurting him. I was a broken person. Now several times I wanted to leave this space, this room that we were in. I was afraid of what he would show me next. He said to me, Faith, you could go whenever you want to. If this is too painful for you, you can leave. And I said to him, I said, God, you're the one and only God. There is nowhere else for me to go. I would rather be the mercy and the hands of you who love me than of the evil one. I don't know how long this lasted. I'm not going to share with you everything that he said because I don't think it would benefit you. But I will tell you this. He addressed pride, selfishness, etc. This was a time of rebuke, house cleaning, confession, and a total breaking down of self. I said to God at one point, why are you doing this? Am I going to die? That's what came to my mind. Am I going to die here? Are you preparing me to die? I know that you love me, and you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't, if you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't want to take the time to help me be right with you. Now, I honestly had no idea that things were not right between God and I. I come to this church every week. I pray and I read my Bible. But let me tell you that Satan is subtle. Self is desperately wicked and deceitful. I had been letting my prayer time and my reading time get shorter. I got distracted with my girls, my work, my life, and other worldly things. And I will tell you some things that he told me. He said to me, time is short. He said, we need to all be free of sin. He told me that he would heal me, but it wasn't because of my prayers. He told me he was going to heal me because of the prayers of a friend. He told me that he had the right to take my life from me or give it back. He didn't cause my sickness, but he allowed it to happen because he wanted my full attention. Now, I promise you, he had my full attention. It is very clear to me. God is not pleased with lukewarm, half-hearted relationship with him. He doesn't take to insincere prayers or repeated ones. I want to tell you the good news. I finally did feel his peace. Joy came over me like I honestly cannot describe to you. I thanked God for healing me. I thanked him for answering the prayers of my friends, and I thanked him for forgiving me even when I didn't deserve his mercy. This peace did not come after, until after moments of confession and brokenness. He showed me, started to show me things. At one point, he showed me a glass. He said, this glass is you. It needed to be cleaned and emptied of self. Then I saw a pitcher with water in it. He says, I'm going to pour my Holy Spirit into this glass until it's overflowing. Once this glass is full, he told me to look through the glass. He says, once, once you look through this glass, 
and people look through it, they won't see you anymore. They're going to see me. Now, please know that I am not a special person. I am a big sinner that God showed mercy to. He explained to me that he was going to be doing this same process in the lives of many of his people. He said, any one of you that are willing to submit to him, he would clean up your glass and fill you with his Holy Spirit. He wants to raise up, and I'm using his words here, an army. I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget that he said it. He said, I'm raising up an army of clean vessels who will perfectly reflect me. He told me that he had a special work for me to do. And that, at that moment, I thought of Ron. I said, Ron, will Ron be by my side? I asked God that. He said, if Ron is willing and will submit to my leading, and I believe that my husband will. Time is short. It was time to commit to him more fully than I ever have. The next morning, I received a text message from a friend at this church. She said she had been up all night praying for me. I knew when I got that text message, it was her prayers that had been answered for me. And I cannot tell you how grateful that I am that she is a godly person who took the time to pray for me. I called my husband. I said, yeah, I need to talk to you. Please listen to me closely. I'm sold out to God. You cannot say or do anything to convince me differently. I've just sat in his presence. He is full of love and he is full of mercy, but he is a God of justice. Do not be deceived to think he isn't. He will not take sin lightly. If you think things are okay between you and God, they might not be. You do not want to stand before God and have any sin in your heart. He is so powerful. He wants to do big things in the lives of his people. He has the power to heal you physically, and he has the power to heal you spiritually. Now, these antibiotics worked for me. The infectious disease doctor walked into my room Friday morning. I felt such peace when she came into my room. I looked right at her and I said, are you a Christian? She said, yes. I said, are you an Adventist? She said, yes. I knew she was going to play a part in my healing. I was discharged with a boatload of pills to take for two weeks. Now, I just want to summarize what I've learned. Number one, I had no business making chicken for my family because I was preparing it when I got sick. I don't even eat meat. But God told me, quit trying to please other people. You're, I, he's the only one that I need to work on pleasing. Number two, I need to be more vulnerable and share with other people. We can't keep pretending that everything is okay. We are God's people. Share your struggles with someone, confess your brokenness, and pray for each other. Number three, the prayers of the righteous are very, very powerful. Get right with God so that you can pray for your loved ones, yourself, and those in need. Number four, everyone is in a different place with their journey with God. We may be in different places, and that's between them and God. Pray for them. Do not judge others. Love them. Number five, things that you think aren't a big deal just might be a big deal to him. Don't trust your view of things. Ask God for clarity. And number six, this is important. 
we don't have time to mess around with sin. The world or anything that keeps you from spending time with God, if you're lukewarm, you need to stop. You need to get sold out for God. I'm on a journey to heaven. I can't look back, slow down, or keep making the mistakes that I was making. I don't have any time for that nonsense. I'm done with worldly things, and I'm 100% sold out to God. He told me that the more that I become like him, some people won't like it, but that it would be okay. He said, because some people are going to be drawn to you because you're like me. I've been broken, but I've been healed. I've been emptied of self, and I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. I told God he gets all of me. I want to share his love and mercy with all of the broken people that I meet. All God shares with you is to be shared with others. Don't be selfish with your time, your means, or the truth that's written in God's word. It's to be generously shared with those around you. There's a lot of broken people out there that need you and I to be Christ to them. I'm praying that you will be drawn closer to the most. So now what? Like Israel of old, it is time to weep between the porch and the altar. Please pray for your pastor. And know that your pastor is praying for you. You know, if the devil only has one bullet in his gun and he wants to wipe out a church, who does he go after? Please pray for our conference leaders in our conference. Please be praying for them. Pray for our union, NAD, and GC leaders. They need our prayers, brothers and sisters. Let's also be praying earnestly for the upcoming GC session, especially the decisions they'll be making on the issue of noncompliance. They'll be selecting a new NAD president and a new GC president. They need our prayers. I want, to, I want to share something with you. When Israel approached Baal Peor, they did not turn back into the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, we are going through this time. The church is going through this time. We're not turning back. We're going through. So now what? Let's draw closer to Jesus. Let's make sure to put stuff away that's coming between our soul and our Savior. Let's continue our devotional time. And if we don't have one, it is time now, brothers and sisters, because it's only by beholding that we become changed. We need to spend time with Jesus. If you don't know what to read, then pick up Steps to Christ or Patriarchs and Prophets and begin there. And of course, there are Bible texts that it points you to. But also, it's a time to pray together. Get together. Pray together. I want you to know that a group of us pastors in this area are coming together once a month for the purpose of praying for you, ourselves, and our leaders in this GC session. It's happening. Let's do that. Let's allow Jesus to change us. Let's trust that he can and that he will. Let's make the choice to obey him. And let's make the decision to support your local church, your church here, and the outreach. You can do so by your prayers, your presence, and your resource. And tonight, your, business, your church and business session, which is the highest authority in this congregation, is meeting for the upcoming plans. It will not be a long meeting. Let's come together and let's pray. That's at 5.30 tonight. I want to leave you. Oh, wait, a couple more things. Let's remember to witness to our neighbors, those in our workplace and our school. As we travel in waiting areas, there's little glow tracks. If you have, you have questions, you have Tad here about some ideas for literature. But share 
We're running out of time. As we begin this new year, how many are willing to recommit themselves anew to Christ? Praise God. It's time to go home, friends. One last thing, and then I'm going to share with you two quotes and step down. Next Sabbath, we have a very unique speaker coming. Uh, we have Sister Pine's daughter, Michelle Pine, is an attorney in upstate New York. Her passion is religious liberties. She is going to come to share of stuff and bring us up to speed things that are happening that need to be shared in our church. This is a huge meeting. Do not miss this meeting. If you have friends, I don't care about their, whether they're Christians or not, if they have an interest in religious liberty, they have got to come to this meeting. Invite them. This is going to be big, a big meeting. I leave you with two quotes. Uh, the first one is Volume 6, Testimony 19, page 19. The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the, the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. And it's not just a message given, brothers and sisters. It's a message lived. Christ's Object Lessons 415, 416. The last message of mercy is to, uh, to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. In other words, does the world see Jesus in me? And that begins in my home. Does my wife see Jesus in me? Do my children see Jesus in me? Because if it's not happening in the home, it's not happening. It's a put on. The acid test is in our home. My friends, Jesus is about to return. But before he does, the world is going to face an unprecedented crisis. My prayer is that on the day that Jesus returns, we will all be ready to meet him in peace along with all of our friends and loved ones and those we've labored for. That is my prayer. God bless you.